Welcome to Dissecting Philosophy with Dr. MacDonald. In this episode, I'll be reading and discussing the sections of the famous philosophers and of the night song in Nietzsche's Thus Spoke Zarathustra. I'll also have a discussion of a section in Homer's Odyssey dealing with Odysseus and Circe. And I also have a discussion of the film Notting Hill. So let's get started. Of the famous philosophers. You have served the people and the people's superstitions, all you famous philosophers. You have not served truth, and it's precisely for that reason that they paid you reverence. And for that reason too, they endured your disbelief, because it was a joke and a bypath for the people. Thus the Lord indulges his slaves and enjoys their insolence. But he who is hated by the people as a wolf is by the dogs. He is the free spirit, the enemy of fetters, the non-worshipper, the dweller in forests. To hunt him from his hiding place, the people always called that having a sense of right. They have always set their sharpest toothed dogs upon him. For where the people are, truth is. Woe to him who seeks. That is how it has been from the beginning. You sought to make the people justified in the reverence that you called will to truth, you famous philosophers. And your heart always said to itself, I came from the people. God's voice too came to me from them. You have always been obstinate and cunning like the ass as the people's advocate and many a man of power who wanted to fare well with the people harnessed in front of his horses a little ass a famous philosopher and now i should like you to throw the lion skin right off yourselves you famous philosophers the spotted skin of the beast of prey and the matted hair of the inquirer the seeker the overcomer ah for me to learn to believe in your genuineness you would have to first break your will to venerate so straight from the get-go nietzsche targets famous philosophers in a very broad and general sense and says they don't serve the truth what do they ultimately serve is the people and to then reaffirm popular opinion and what people believe to be true and so this goes against a trend in traditional philosophy where you can argue that it's the job of the philosopher precisely to challenge and not uphold social and cultural norms and challenge how we think about things and ideas rather than trying to reaffirm them and so Nietzsche's then saying well this whole aspect of critical thinking within philosophy this whole aspect about seeking truth finding knowledge and challenging what we think 
is for the most part, for the majority of people who uphold to be famous philosophers, don't do that. Because what they actually do is to then go and seek truth and find knowledge. But what they ultimately discover through all that seeking is rather already what people believe and already what people think. And so it's quite interesting here then Nietzsche gives us this whole image not of a philosopher to then reaffirm people's opinions and beliefs but rather philosophers are these people who are in forests as he says almost like a hermit in a way who've removed themselves from society and their own opinions can be completely against popular belief to such an extent of course that people will want to go into the forest and hunt them down and make them stop whatever their opinion is in the first place or whatever their idea is in the first place they would see that as something that's harmful because it challenges the way that they think it challenges the social and cultural norm that's been accepted by the general populace. How dare this person challenge our way of thinking? And that's what Nietzsche says is the image of what philosophers should be, is this person that can be ridiculed by society at a given time period, that people will want to go seek the dogs on them for what they're going to go and say as an idea, because what's the benefit, of course, of that? opinion and that alternative perspective is that actually it could be very valid in the first place because what can be upheld as a popular opinion or truth can in fact be something that's harmful and something that is in fact as he says in the last sections poisonous for us because the general populace could be upholding something that's told to them as something that's good something is beneficial and in fact it's not at all such as again in Nazi Germany where everybody upholds the belief in the Nazi state and the persecution of the Jewish race is something that's positive but of course it's not and it's the whole point in each sentence what people uphold to be good for you and uphold is what's to be the true way of thinking is in fact complete rubbish that's what the job of a philosopher is to do to break down the way in which we think about things and present it to us in such a way that could shock us and infuriate us but never to the extent of course that we do actually genuinely want to go and hunt them down with the dogs but precisely in such a way that it's saying well here's a different alternative perspective why don't we take this perspective and think about it and allow us to affirm that opinion rather than just trying to brush it under the carpet or get rid of it altogether because it doesn't fit in within the social and cultural norm. Continuing on then, genuine. That is what I call him who goes into godforsaken deserts and has broken his venerating heart in the yellow sand and burned by the sun. Perhaps he blinks thirstily at the islands filled with springs where living creatures rest beneath shady trees. But his thirst does not persuade him to become like these comfortable creatures. For where there are oases, 
there are also idols, hungered, violent, solitary, godless. That is how the lion will wants to be, free from the happiness of serfs, redeemed from gods and worship, fearless and fearful, great and solitary. That is how the will of the genuine man is. The genuine men, the free spirits, have always dwelt in the desert as lords of the desert. But in the towns dwell the well-fed famous philosophers, the drought animals. For they always, as asses, pull the people's cart. Not that I am wroth with them for that. However, they are still servants and beasts in harness, even when they glitter with golden gear. And they have often been good and praiseworthy servants, for thus speaks virtue. If you must be a servant, then seek him whom you can serve best. The spirit and the virtue of your Lord should thrive because you are his servant. Thus you yourself will thrive with your Lord's spirit and virtue. And in truth, you famous philosophers, you servants of the people, you yourselves have thrived with the spirit and virtue of the people and the people have thrived through you. It is to your honour I say this, but you are still of the people even in your virtue, of the people with their purblind eyes, of the people who do not want to know what spirit is. So then Nietzsche goes a little bit more into exactly what makes up a philosopher there, and builds upon what does it mean to break your will to venerate. And so, of course, veneration means to no longer uphold things and revere things because what happens when you do if you already uphold something as an opinion an idea a value everything that you're going to do is just going to then reaffirm the exact same opinion idea or value and not challenge your own self and challenge all those things and that's what we want of course and for us not just to simply just reaffirm that, but to reevaluate it and reevaluate our own ideas. And how do we move towards this sense of reevaluating? Is, as he says, a break away from what people accept as a social and cultural norm, not being comforted in what we think. And so we have to move out into the desert in a way, into a sort of barren landscape where we are no longer comforted or try to reaffirm anything we already uphold, but in that barren landscape where we're going to strive to go and reach different ways of thinking about it. And such an interest and idea, of course, that thought itself is something you really have to strive for really have to push yourself for because so much of the way in which we think thought is already something that's determined for us in such an everyday basis as well and a good example of that is in education where you can have a test in which you can then just tick the correct answer for whichever question it is. So then how do you go about preparing yourself from that task is of course just then learning specific dates and names and so on. But are you genuinely learning anything for yourself? 
in that process? No, because all what learning is, is just a pro process of memorization and then repeating yourself. There's no actual thought process that's going on. There's nothing deeper happening there. And so knowledge isn't just this whole memory process and then repetition of memory but rather we ourselves have to make sense of things we ourselves have to understand things but we're so comforted when somebody's already done the work for us in the sense of that's what's so good about early school as well as the teachers do all the work for you and then you only have to then follow what the teacher says but of course later in life you're more free to develop who you are as a person but then that's what Nietzsche is saying as well well even later on in life there's so much that's determined within culture and society that says how you should think which way you should think that everything is just led into acceptance of this is how it should be when we ourselves should be challenging the way in which we're brought up and those norms that's given to us to be accepted as well is this something that should be accepted by me why is this the case and asking all those good critical thinking style of questions rather than just accepting everything at face value and so then we get that lovely model that comes out of the lion will. It's such a fantastic image of the lion. And that goes back into the section of the three metamorphoses. He says, when we come into the whole idea of how do we reach new values and new ways of thinking in the first place, first you have to have the camel. That's the sense of the whole burdens of the norms of society and so forth. And then you have the lion that fights against the dragon as he says in order for you have any sense of newness any sense of creativity happen whatsoever you have to have this behemoth battle between exactly what people think and then comes the child and the childlike idea who then gets rid of all this sense of battling things and there's an innocence in that creativity as well and then they're the ones that create the new ideas so then we go into the idea of building up more of the lion what is the lion like when we do battle with these ideas in the first place it's something that's hungered violent solitary godless so what can we break those down into meaning a little bit more so you could say hungered is really your reason to seek and discover and discover for yourself and that non-acceptance of what's already given to you so just that whole sense of wanting to strive to learn is that you're hungry to learn and in violence you could say well critically what is there possibly something positive in violence and it doesn't mean here in the sense of physical violence but rather the whole sense of the violence in trying to change ideas in the first place and then the violence that could also be incurred through presenting that alternative perspective so it's like two things that's going on the violence of trying to change and the reaction against that change is equally violent just in the way in which you'd have the dogs hounded upon those who seek to change things and then solitary 
The whole idea that Nietzsche has is, well, in order to be creative, in order for anything new to happen, we have to pull ourselves away from society, away from anything that makes us comforted, because all what will happen is we just go back into then reaffirm everything within society, those social and cultural norms, you need to get out of there. What is so beneficial of going out, of course, from society is then you're able to rise above it then you're more clearly able to reflect upon the structural problems within society and the deeper problems that happens rather than being caught up in all the little goings on that happens. And then finally we have the idea of being godless. And really you could say, well, here you can be quite critical because religion would provide us with a nice ethical basis for our actions and so on. But Nietzsche's saying, well, in order for us to arrive at the idea of God, we have to do that for ourselves and not just a complete acceptance at face value of what an organized religion would tell us in the first place. In order for us to reach God, we'd have to be without God in the first place because we have to be able to arrive at the idea of God for ourselves and make sense of God for ourselves as an idea. And then it also gets into the whole argument as well of not immediately just then accepting what people tell you as well from childhood is true and then you're able to determine for yourself whether God exists or not and not just simply going straight into the argument of God exists because and then that argument for God's existence is simply just a reaffirmation of the social and cultural norms and familial upbringing and so forth. We don't want that for Nietzsche. So continuing on then, spirit is the life that itself strikes into life. Through its own torment, it increases its own knowledge. Did you know that before? And this is the spirit's happiness to be anointed and by tears consecrated as a sacrificial beast. Did you know that before? And the blindness of the blind man, and his seeking and his groping, shall yet bear witness to the power of the sun into which he gazed. Did you know that before? And the enlightened man shall learn to build with mountains. It is a small thing for the spirit to move mountains. Did you know that before? You know only of the sparks of the spirit, but you do not see the anvil which the spirit is, nor the ferocity of its hammer. In truth, you do not know the spirit's pride, but even less could you endure the spirit's modesty, if it should ever deign to speak. And you have never yet dared to cast your spirit into a pit of snow. You are not hot enough for that. Thus, you do not know the rapture of its coldness either. But you behave in all things in an all too familiar a way with the spirit. And you have often made of wisdom a poorhouse and a hospital for bad poets. You are no eagles, so neither do you know the spirit's joy in terror. And he who is not a bird shall not make his home above abysses. You are tepid, but all deep knowledge flows cold. The innermost wells of the spirit are ice cold, a refreshment to hot hands and handlers. You stand there respectable and stiff. And with a straight back, you famous philosophers, no strong wind or will propels you. 
Have you ever seen a sail faring over the sea, rounded and swelling and shuddering before the impetuosity of the wind? Like a sail, shuddering before the impetuosity of the spirit, my wisdom fares over the sea, my untamed wisdom. But could you servants of the people, you famous philosophers, how could you fare with me? Thus spoke Zarathustra. So rounding off the section, then, Nietzsche goes into the various different ways in which these famous philosophers don't know what spirit is, and then proceeds us to tell us exactly what he says it is. And let's just go through a few of the examples that he gives us. So first he says, Spirit is the life that itself strikes into life through its own torment. It increases its own knowledge. So it's that whole idea there that knowledge is not easy to arrive at. And again, not just the whole idea of just simply repeating what we've already known or reaffirming those social and cultural norms, but rather just the whole idea of increasing knowledge itself is an incredible amount of torment and suffering and striving somebody can have precisely to change the way we think about something. And it's not just a simple, easy task, but always what we see, of course, is the end product of all that striving and all that suffering. And what Nietzsche makes us aware of is precisely all that pain and suffering and striving that people had to go through in the first place in order for that change in the way we think to take place. And then we move into the whole idea of spirit's happiness is to be like a sacrificial beast. In the same sense of you have here the whole idea of knowledge as being a, like a sacrificial beast in such a way that you have to let it go and not hold on to it as a sacred object. But itself, if you let it go as an idea or as an opinion and so forth, then you can ultimately open it up and allow for great things to happen after it. But it needs that whole process of being that sacrificial beast there in the first place in order for all that newness and difference to emerge. And then we have that fantastic image of building with mountains. Again, it's that whole idea of once we let go of an idea, then we can see how fragile it is. And then you can precisely play with very grand, big things that were meant to be upheld as immovable and untouchable like a mountain but it's almost like say well ideas and opinions are not mountains in fact we can precisely move them around we can precisely play with them they're much more fragile than what we take them for which then goes into Nietzsche's whole idea of the hammer and the anvil precisely being able to break apart knowledge is not something as pure or absolute or as eternal, as unchanging. Nietzsche's going to be like, no, watch this, smash, in the sense of taking a big hammer and just smashing an idea to look at all the different pieces of it. And a good example is the very way in which Nietzsche's own philosophy works like that, of course, in which you have the ideas of good and evil as you think of two absolute pure 
unshakable, immovable ideas of absolute good, absolute evil, and the genealogy of morality, Nietzsche breaks down those ideas precisely that we have and takes a big hammer to it in a way and shows that actually we can historically trace this through a genealogy as he says as to why we think a certain idea is good at a certain time period and then of course another idea that contradicts that is good at another period in time what exactly is happening there why do we think the way we do in a given time period? What are the forces at work that makes us think that way? And by looking at things at a much deeper level, we then are able to rise ourselves above all the goings-on like a bird, he says. And we're not caught any longer in an abyss. And the abyss here, of course, is the sense of all the surface level problems that's going on rather we're raising ourselves above it or as he says we're removing ourselves from the town going into the desert so then we're more able to clearly reflect upon those problems that's within the town and then rounding off the section we have a fantastic image of Zarathustra being like a strong wind coming back that's going to be like blowing through again and that his wisdom is something that's untamed, can't be harnessed in any given way. And of course the challenge, how could you fare with me? Because my wisdom's untamed. And yet all you famous philosophers are harnessed down and want it nice and comfortable. But I'm, I'm wanting choppy waters, basically. I don't like everything to be nice. So of course in this section you can get very curious to say, well... Is Nietzsche specifically targeting any famous philosopher in particular? He doesn't mention anyone by name, but rather, I think it's more rather to do with the way in which philosophers can fall into the trap of not seeking the more critical thinking roots about things and going and analyzing things on a deeper level, but rather go to then reaffirm everything that's a social and cultural norm within society of what an idea that's good or an idea that's bad or an idea of god and so forth but does everybody fit into this generalization of course not and a good example of somebody who doesn't fit into that is of course socrates because socrates himself and even characterized by nietzsche as well in the twilight of the idols chapter one the problem of socrates is that socrates is like a bit of a weird anomaly in the sense of even though he's not technically living in the woods as he says away from society he does go against athenian values and athenian ideas by what exactly he argues for and of course one example of that is the argument against democracy that we have in Plato's Republic and then you can say well why is this the case why does Socrates make himself an anomaly basically and Nietzsche argues that Socrates and his way of thinking almost become outdated because there's a whole new way of thinking about things emerging in a given 
period. And so what Nietzsche says is what we have in Socrates is sort of a mode of self-preservation that takes place, sort of making sure that your ideas can still be heard and people will take you seriously. So it's quite interesting as well when you think that Socrates is a good model there in which you have someone who goes against the grain and a philosopher that sort of fits into Nietzsche's own idea about someone who goes out with the given norms within society and culture in a given time period. So a good example for this section I thought of was the Odyssey by Homer and specifically the section in book 10 where Odysseus is on the island with Circe. So let's read a very brief description of what happens and this is from Spark Notes. Odysseus and his men travel to Aea, home of the beautiful witch goddess Circe. Circe drugs a band of Odysseus's men and turns them into pigs. When Odysseus goes to rescue them, Hermes approaches him in the form of a young man. He tells Odysseus to eat a herb called Molly to protect himself from Circe's drug and then lunge at her when she tries to strike him with her sword. Odysseus follows Hermes' instructions, overpowering Circe and forcing her to change his men back to their human forms. Odysseus soon becomes Circe's lover and he and his men live with her in luxury for a year. When his men finally persuade him to continue the voyage homeward, Odysseus asks Circe for the way back to Ithaca, which is Odysseus's homeland, and she replies he must sail to Hades, the realm of the dead, to speak to the spirit of Tiresias, a blind prophet who will tell him how to get home. So of course, it's an example that's been played out in many different forms as well, in which I'm pretty sure there's a Simpsons tribute to specifically this scene from the Odyssey as well, and Odysseus is played by Homer Simpson. But what's so good about that specific example is that section where Odysseus and his men are in a comforted, luxurious state in which he also has Circe as his lover as well. So everything is perfectly taken care of for him. He has absolutely not a care in the world whatsoever. And you can say that state of being in complete comfort is the way in which Nietzsche also paints an image of people when they're completely content and accept things at face value. And why would you need to go and challenge any values or ideas or opinions and so forth? Look at you. You've got all that luxurious food in you. You can go and have sex whenever you want. Why would you need to change that as a way of doing things? And so then comes the question, of course, when do we exactly desire for things to be different? What exactly shifts us out of our comfort zone? And so we have that section where his men basically want to leave the island. So let's just read this little section as well. And this is from theoi.com where you can find the full text of Homer's Odyssey. So there, day after day, for a full year we abode. 
feasting on abundant flesh and sweet wine. But when a year was gone and the seasons turned, as the months waned and the long days were brought in their course, then my trusty comrades called me forth and said, Strange man, bethink thee now at last of thy native land, if it is fated for thee to be saved and to reach thy high-footed house and thy native land. So you can see that Odysseus's men precisely want to leave because Odysseus's whole task, of course, in the Odyssey is to make that journey back home to Ithaca and his men are like, okay, now we should get back on track and go back to Ithaca. And of course, what they're going to meet is more trouble and more problems as they try to make their way back. But that's the whole point, of course, is what motivates them is no longer to be comforted, no longer to have luxurious time with great food, wine and sex all the time. But it's precisely that motivation for change that says, okay, now we need to move on and go back to Ithaca in the first place. And there's the same sense as well in which we have the whole necessity for ideas to change is that desire in order to move us out of that comfortable state in which we just blindly accept things at face value. Then we should become more like Odysseus who stirred by his men no longer to just be comforted but rather have the desire to seek to change the circumstance that you're in in the first place. Moving on to the next section then. The night song. It is night. Now do all leaping fountains speak louder. And my soul too is a leaping fountain. It is night. Only now do all songs of lovers awaken. And my soul too is the song of a lover. Something unquenched, unquenchable is in me that wants to speak out. A craving for love is in me that itself speaks the language of love. Light am I. Ah, that I were night. But this is my solitude, that I am girded round with light. Ah, that I were dark and obscure, how I would suck at the breaths of light. And I bless you, little sparkling stars and glowing worms above, and be happy in your gifts of light. But I live in my own light, I drink back into myself the flames that break from me. I do not know the joy of the receiver, and I have often dreamed that stealing must be more blessed than receiving. It is my poverty that my hand never rests from giving. It is my envy that I see expectant eyes in the loomed nights of desire. O oh, wretchedness of all givers, O oh, eclipse of my sun, O oh, craving for desire, O oh, ravenous hunger and satiety, they take from me, but do I yet touch their souls? A gulf stands between giving and receiving, and the smallest gulf must be bridged at last. A hunger grows from out my beauty. I should like to rob those to whom I give. Thus do I hunger after wickedness, withdrawing my hand when another hand already reaches out to it, hesitating like the waterfall that hesitates even in its plunge. Thus do I hunger after wickedness. 
Such revenge does my abundance concoct, such spite wells from my solitude, my joy in giving died in giving, my virtue grew weary of itself through its abundance. So when we start reading this section, it's a quite strange section because suddenly we have all these different metaphors for things and a strange association with things as well. Suddenly Zarathustra saying he is light. Then we have these weird images as well of darkness suckling at the breasts of light. What exactly is going on here? And so we can say that the whole relation of being light is people in their ideas being like a great big beacon of light, let's say. And if we were to view things at night, of course, we'd just see this great big beacons of light of these people with their ideas. And let's say, using philosophy as an example, you can have different philosophers as these big beacons of light. And what do they do? Is that they attract people in, of course, and attract people to their ideas. And we have this whole wanting to be loved and craving for love from other people for Zarathustra as well that comes out wanting his ideas to be affirmed and accepted by others. But he himself is stuck in his own light, as he says, away from everybody else, as he says, but I live in my own light. I drink back into myself the flames that break from me. I do not know the joy of the receiver. So it's that whole sense of wanting other people to receive your ideas in there. And all what he has at the moment is just solely his own enjoyment of his own ideas that he's sort of drinking, as he says, and taking pleasure in. But what Zarathustra does say is that he's a great giver in the sense of what does it mean there that ultimately he's gifting the world with his ideas with his opinion and that what has happened of course is that people have taken all this from him and he's received nothing in return and he keeps on giving and giving and giving and people keep taking and taking and it's a quite interesting point as well because you can reflect upon the problems of the creative process in which people can continually produce ideas, continually produce products and so on, and completely don't have any sort of sense of enjoyment for themselves whatsoever. And hence why the move into then wanting to take something back, as he says, I should like to rob those to whom I give. In the sense of you want to take a little back something for yourself, in your own pleasure in a way, not to be in a completely selfish, without the caring of other people whatsoever, but just so you're just happy and have actually enjoyment in what you're doing and not just continually producing all the time without any sense of your own joy or your own happiness. You need that. And so you've got to make space for yourself, basically, and also not get stuck within your own ideas and then suddenly think you're the best as well. And so there's also that sense of the sort of taking from other people as well in a positive way here. And to say, well, the taking from other people allows us to then also enjoy what other people are doing and makes us 
think differently at the same time and also doesn't get us stuck in a rut either and completely miserable in what we're doing. And we can use the example from the previous section of the virtuous here in the sense of the whole idea of giving that also can be an overlap between this section and the previous one as well in which you have in the virtuous as a section Nietzsche argue for of course the benefits of the ethical model of being like a mother who continually gives and cares for her children without the expectation of receiving anything in return and we sort of have like a follow-on to that as well because it's so brief a discussion in the previous section to say well mothers then need to also make time for themselves they need to also have their own sense of happiness as well even if that's just to put up their feet have a cup of tea watch the tv for a while and so forth and have a little sense of your own enjoyment because if that whole sense of all what you did was just give 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 and not make any time for yourself you would completely have no joy whatsoever he's saying through that quote my joy in giving died in giving my virtue grew weary of itself through its abundance continuing on then the danger for him who always gives is that he may lose his shame the hand and heart of him who distributes grow callous through sheer distributing my eye no longer overflows with the shame of suppliance my hand has become too hard for the trembling of hands that have been filled where have the tears of my eye and the bloom of my heart gone o solitude of all givers o silence of all light givers many suns circle in empty space to all that is dark they speak with their light to me they are silent o that is the enmity of light towards what gives light unpitying it travels its way unjust towards the light giver in its inmost heart cold towards suns thus travels every sun like a storm the suns fly along their courses that is their travelling they follow their inexorable will that is their coldness oh it is only you obscure dark ones who extract warmth from light givers oh only you drink milk and comfort from the udders of light ah ice is around me my hand is burned with ice ah thirst is in me which yearns after your thirst it is night ah that i must be light and thirst for the things of night and solitude it is night now my longing breaks from me like a wellspring i long for speech it is night now do all leaping fountains speak louder and my soul too is a leaping fountain it is night only now do all songs of lovers awaken and my soul too is the song of a lover thus sang zarathustra so we have then nietzsche issue a warning as well for people who always give to then have the danger of always giving and the callousness as he says of this year distributing out of the production again is the lack of shame from all that and what nietzsche's 
pointing out is the problem here is the problems of sheer excess and shouldn't we reflect upon that as a problem and so the problem of course is then that you want what you're giving to others for your idea and your opinion to have value and to help others of course and assist other people and the problem is through that sheer just producing is is it actually helping is it actually assisting is there not a better way that can help others than by sheer excess he's saying here is there something more practical you can do rather than just continually give out give out give out all the time rather should we not more deeply look at the problems and think about what can be resolved within a given area rather than just continually trying to just give out give out give out all the time and then we have the entrance of suns and their difference between light givers that comes up and so this sort of builds upon the previous section of famous philosophers as well where you can say well suns what do they do they completely get rid of all darkness whatsoever and there's nothing to suckle at is a good example and say well what exactly could Nietzsche be getting at here is whenever you have that sense of an absolutely dominant opinion or idea that then tries to blot out absolutely everything else and let's say all the contrasting opinions are those stars in the night sky and then suddenly of course in appears the sun in the morning that completely erases all that and so that's all what we're left with is just this big massive person whoever it is with their idea and it's ultimately blotted out all the different opinions and diversity and different approaches that we can have and Zarathustra himself says that he's a light giver not a sun and so that itself is quite interesting because he doesn't want to ultimately blot out other different opinions or alternative views he doesn't want to be that absolute dominant idea and approach that others should adhere to verbatim and there's a nice quote from Douglas Burnham in his book Nietzsche's Thus Spoke Zarathustra an Edinburgh Philosophical Guide and this is the little quote Zarathustra longs to be the night that receives light instead of the sun from which light always flees and again it goes back into Nietzsche's whole idea of friendship as well in the sense of here we have the whole metaphor of wanting to be night that receives light in the sense of also allowing for other people's opinions and so forth to affect our own in contrast to that of the sons who just would outwardly just dispel all different viewpoints and alternatives altogether in preference to their own view and hence why we have that whole association there he says oh it is only you obscure dark ones who extract warmth from light givers oh only you drink milk and comfort from the udders of light which in itself is quite a strange sentence but it's again getting at that whole idea of well then we can have the whole 
receiving of knowledge from whoever it is that we go to and have the benefits of what they say but then we also can go to other people's opinions and then also receive the alternative idea that they also have and then not be sun-like and just trying to get rid of any benefit of all the different approaches and opinions that we can have all together. And so a good movie for this section I thought to discuss is Notting Hill from 1999 starring Hugh Grant and Julia Roberts. So here's a little summary of the plot from Google. William Thacker, played by Hugh Grant, is a London bookstore owner whose humdrum existence is thrown into romantic turmoil when famous American actress Anna Scott, played by Julia Roberts, appears in his shop. A chance encounter overspilled a chance encounter over spilled orange juice leads to a kiss that blossoms into a full-blown affair. As the average bloke and glamorous movie star draw closer and closer together, they struggle to reconcile their radically different lifestyles in the name of love. So what's so good about Notting Hill is, well, as you can have Hugh Grant as the character, of course, who you can say is the light and a light giver. And then you can have the whole idea of being an actress and Julia Roberts' character as being sun and sun-like. In the sense, of course, you have that whole relation into celebrity and fame and how much their opinion is valued and takes on such greater meaning than those of the light giver or Hugh Grant's character. And so, of course, then we have the wonderful clash between lifestyles of an ordinary life versus that of a glamorous lifestyle, an American dream personified, let's say. And of course, we can go to the most famous scene out of the entire film, where, of course, it's that part in which you have the whole speech by Julia Roberts who just wants to enter into a relationship with Hugh Grant's character. And she ultimately has that whole line of, I'm just a girl standing here wanting to be loved, just looking at a man. So that whole sense of, in order for her to be loved in the first place, she's got to sort of show the fact that this whole persona and whole sunlight quality that's been built upon her doesn't actually represent her as a person. And that's quite interesting in and of itself is when we hear so much has the whole idea of celebrity culture and specific people. Of course, then there's the whole media portrayal of what those people are like. But of course, is that portrayal actually what they're like? Does even their opinion snippet of what they said is that actually representative of what they thought? Is it actually taken out of context? And so we get a nice little, of course, critical aspect as well of thinking about how the media portrays people, how the media can try and twist what people say and affects exactly how we can think of other people as well. And then, of course, we have the whole idea of, well, what happens when you just want to enter into a romantic relationship with someone, but you just so happen to be such and such celebrity as well? Then you have to move, of course, 
in a very Nietzschean sense in this section, away from that whole sense of being sun-like and back towards the whole idea and affirmation of night and stars and everyone else and not just you and your opinion. And so we see the whole sort of idea of joy and happiness as well as not just being this sun-like quality because of what you were doing is just constantly giving out your ideas receiving nothing back at all whatsoever your own happiness then depends upon that relationship and acceptance of other people and different lifestyles out with our own out with the way in which we've been brought up many thanks for listening to the episode Feel free to check out my Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dissecting philosophy. For one dollar, you can get your name added to the list of supporters in the description of the episode, a copy of each episode's notes, and to vote on polls for what I should read and discuss next. For three dollars, you get access to my Patreon-only Discord chat as well as all the previous tier awards. And for five dollars, you get early access to episodes and you'll be able to listen to episodes faster. Also feel free to drop me an email at my address, dissectingphilosophy at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at I am a rubber man. Many thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join me next time.